You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. As we've talked about for weeks now, but perhaps this might be your first Sunday and it would be helpful to uh, catch us up to speed, the story of Ruth is set against the backdrop of one of the, the darkest moments in all of redemptive history, as the story begins by telling us in the days when the judges ruled, a time between the entrance of God's people into the promised land in the wake of the Exodus and the establishment of the Israelite monarchy under the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon, a time when there was yet no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sort of ancient Near Eastern postmodernism in that sense. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you and will live as such. The Israelites in this time, in many ways, indistinguishable from the surrounding nations, caught up in this recurring cycle of sin, judgment, and deliverance, which the book of Judges tells us all about. The downward spiraling of God's people into the darkness of covenant-breaking rebellion. The story of Ruth beginning with a famine in the land, a famine in the days when the judges ruled, which a great many scholars, as we've talked about throughout the course of this series, understand to be a theological statement, a covenantal statement, a reminder for any one of this story's first hearers or readers of the covenant blessings and curses laid out for God's people in the days of Moses, including the blessing of a fruitful field should God's people live in covenant obedience and the curse of a desolate field should God's people live in covenant disobedience. So that the Lord cursed the ground in the days of the judges, just as he had cursed the ground in the wake of the sin of our first parents in the garden. The barren fields of Judah, in a sense, God's megaphone calling his people to return to him in repentance and trust. It's in these darkened days of widespread rebellion and famine that we're told that a man named Elimelech packed up his family and journeyed to Moab, leaving the, the land of God's presence and God's promise for one of the many surrounding lands of foreign gods. A land in which not only did Elimelech soon die, leaving his wife Naomi a widow and his sons fatherless, but a land in which his sons too died, leaving their two Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah, grieving widows. Three funerals, three widowed women, all before you leave the first paragraph of this story. It's beginnings, much like the story of Job. And yet, a story not completely absent of hope as we're told that Naomi, in the midst of her grief, coming out of that first paragraph of the story, received good news out in the fields of Moab, news that the famine in Israel had finally come to an end, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food, prompting a return for Naomi from Moab to Bethlehem, a journey that, as we saw, began with Ruth and Orpah by her side, one that somewhere along the way came to its own pivotal fork in the road as Naomi encouraged her daughters-in-law to return to Moab, wishing for the Lord to deal kindly with them, yet unable to envision such kindness for them to be found in Judah. Naomi herself, as is the case for us oftentimes, struggling on the road to Bethlehem, not with the sovereignty of God, but with the goodness of God. 
seeing herself as cursed. So that for the three women to go their separate ways would surely be best. To which Orpah, as we saw, responded by turning back to the land of Moab, never to be heard from or heard of again in this incredible story. Ruth, on the other hand, making the deepest of commitments and joining herself not only to Naomi, but the people of Israel and the covenant God of Israel. A woman for whom there was no looking back, regardless of what it might cost her in leaving everything she had ever known behind. The return home for Naomi, nothing less than sorrowful, looking at the end of chapter one, having tasted numerous times over the bitterness of her own tears, the bitterness of life so great that she welcomed a new name. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi meaning pleasant or sweet, Mara meaning bitter. God having become in Naomi's mind this, this frowning providence behind which there hides no smiling face. So that not only could she not see God's kindness in the stories of redemption past, but too in the many expressions of his kindness and grace all around her. As is the case for many of us, if we're honest, when the circumstances of life are most bitter. The first chapter of Ruth, beginning with a famine and ending with a harvest, reminding us that our God is indeed a God who brings redemption out of the ashes of ruin. It's his MO. He's been doing it since Genesis 3, clothing our first parents in animal skins. The first bloodshed we see in God's story of redemption, already looking ahead to the coming of Christ who had shed his blood on our behalf. Even the seeds of bitterness sown in Naomi's heart, they won't have the last word in this story. God will, in the unfolding of this story, bring about a harvest of renewal and healing for her. You begin to see that here in chapter two a turn in the story that sets the stage for the most unexpected of happy endings. As Ruth, as we saw last week, entered the fields of Bethlehem in an effort to gather food for herself and her mother-in-law, that in and of itself, a kindness of the Lord, mind you, the God-instituted, inscripturated practice of gleaning, allowing widows and orphans and sojourners and the impoverished to provide for themselves in a dignified way, as reapers would purposefully leave some of the, the harvest on the edges of the fields so that those in need could come behind them and, and gather what was left behind. A practice that, to be sure, wasn't upheld by all, surely not in the days of the judges when everyone did what was right in his own eyes, so that we're meant to, to take notice of the fact that Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, chapter two, verse three, which of course and James unpacked this last week, is no statement of sheer chance on the author's part, as if to say, as luck would have it. No, Ruth, having entered the fields one of, the, of, of one of the only men able to bring she and Naomi from ruin to redemption, the wondrous fingerprints of God's hand of providence, so that, and this is critical to see in this story, we don't just see God's hand at work in the miraculous in the parting of the Red Seas of redemptive history. But we see God's hand at work too in a Moabite widow happening upon the field of her soon-to-be kinsman redeemer. Boaz offering her not only provision, but protection. In response to which we saw Ruth fall prostrate to the ground, chapter two, verse 10, overwhelmed by the kindness and favor of which she was a recipient in this moment. 
That should be the response of anyone who has come to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Ruth's words, our words. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? To which God says, Christ. As you pick up the story in verse 14, we're told, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, to Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he, Boaz, passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Right, we've already seen Boaz go beyond the requirement of the law in his provision, not only in the fields, but at the water cooler. Going back to verse nine of this chapter, having invited Ruth to drink from the vessels drawn by the men in a day in which, mind you, foreigners like Ruth would have drawn water for Israelites and women would have drawn water for men. Something upside down in a glorious and good way that's happening here culturally. Not to mention the protection Ruth is afforded in Boaz's command of the men not to touch her. To, to paraphrase one scholar, Boaz institutes the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace recorded in the Bible. And praise God for that. In this morning's passage, we see the continuation of Boaz's kindness to Ruth and not only allowing her to glean from the fields, but inviting her to dine at his table to share in a break time meal among workers, more food that she can eat, we're told, so that as we'll see, verse 18, she takes home leftovers. Notice too that Boaz eats with his workers, not treating them as less than, not only sitting with them, but acting as the host of the meal, providing them with an abundance of food, according to some scholars, a foreshadowing of Jesus's feeding of the 5,000. As James mentioned last week, I want to work in Boaz's field. It's a significant moment in Ruth's life, having known something of the true pangs of hunger. And notice that Boaz's generosity doesn't stop there. Verse 15, we're told, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it to her to glean and do not rebuke her. Again, Boaz goes above and beyond the requirements of the Torah as he orders his workers to allow Ruth to glean from the sheaves, meaning that she wouldn't have to walk around picking up only the tiniest bits of grain that had fallen to the ground. Rather, Boaz goes so far as to deploy his workers with intentionality to leave behind some of the bundles of grain for Ruth to glean. That, by the way, would have been, by and large, unheard of by most landowners. All with the aim that Ruth might walk away with an even greater abundance of provision. Boaz, having determined not to get swallowed up by the American South of his day. Not to be a letter of the law Pharisee, but a spirit of the law, man of godliness and integrity. A man concerned with mercy and justice. A man committed to putting on display the loving kindness and grace of God. In stark contrast to so many in the darkened days of the judges who again did what was right in their own eyes. So that we're told, verse 17 that Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. 
Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Here again, we see the hardworking humility of Ruth in her late hours of the day exhaustion, manually beating out what she had gleaned, separating the grain from the chaff, leaving her, we're told, with roughly an ephah of barley, which amounts to roughly 30 pounds of food. All right, picture three 10-pound bags of potatoes, which most of us would not haul around without a shopping cart. Right, you've gotten yourself in the predicament before where you realized, I got way too many items here. I gotta go back for a basket or a cart. This isn't good. This is that kind of situation in a day without shopping carts. An ephah of barley, not only nearly too much for a person to carry, but it would have provided Ruth and Naomi several weeks worth of meals. Meaning that if Ruth were to gather an ephah each day over the course of the entire harvest season, there, there would be enough in the storehouse to last she and Naomi roughly eight to 12 months, some scholars believing even more than a year. We're meant to see something of Boaz's incredible generosity as well as Ruth's tireless diligence. As Ruth heads home with her 30 pounds of groceries and with those groceries, her leftovers from lunch. Receives quite the response from Naomi as it undoubtedly should Verse 19, her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where did you go grocery shopping, girl? Like, where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, and here as if to leave the suspense, she waits till the very end of the sentence to say his name. The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi's not ready for this. She's unprepared for the kindness and provision with which she's met, having tasted, again, the bitterness of her tears for so long. Again, thinking herself to be cursed by God, perhaps wondering if Ruth would return with anything that day. And yet Ruth arrives with several weeks worth of groceries in hand, such a large amount of barley that Naomi recognizes that Ruth must have been shown incredible generosity and kindness. This reeks of mercy and grace. The word translated kindness being the Hebrew word hesed, which can too be translated as loyalty, faithfulness, devotion, or love. It's a term that we see three times in the book of Ruth, though evidenced as a motif all throughout the story. It's inescapable. Naomi's words of bitterness here giving way to words of benediction. She asked the Lord to bless Boaz for such generosity and kindness. And that's no threat to the gospel, by the way, to highlight the character and integrity of the characters in this story when we see it. Hebrews 11, by faith, Boaz, by faith, Ruth, all because of God, ultimately. This is a kindness that Boaz himself never could have expressed were it not for the kindness of the Lord in bringing harvest from famine. Perhaps it helps to explain the ambiguity of the language here in verse 20, 
Who, who is it whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead? Is it Boaz or is it the Lord? Right? The way these words are written, they, they leave us with uncertainty. There's no cl- clear consensus among pastors and scholars on this one. And perhaps at times as God does, it's by design. The author's intention to leave us with something of this both and. Meaning that yes, Boaz has been kind to Ruth and Naomi and that the kindness of Boaz at the same time is the kindness of the Lord. After all, such language is used elsewhere in scripture to describe the Lord who does not forsake his people. So that God's faithfulness and kindness to Naomi are expressed through the faithfulness and kindness of both Boaz and Ruth. As do we, the church, express the kindness and faithfulness of the Lord as we do good to those whom the Lord has brought into our lives. That's why Paul would write Genesis chapter six, verses nine and 10, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Instruments in the Redeemer's hand, as one pastor and scholar has recently coined the phrase, pointing people to the Redeemer himself. In returning to Bethlehem, Naomi's heart was embittered so that she thought that the Lord had nothing for her but a frowning providence. And yet, here she sees something of his faithfulness and care for her expressed in and through the faithfulness and care of both Boaz and Ruth her faith, at least to some degree, restored. Think about this. Her her moment here, captured in the lyrics of her very own great-great-grandson, David, who would go on to write in the penning of the lyrics of one of his great many songs of praise, Psalm 30, verse 11. These are David's words, but these are two Naomi's words. This is a generational legacy of restoration. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing, David says. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Naomi here experiencing the joy of the Lord's restorative mercy. One of those pinch me, I must be dreaming acts of deliverance and blessing. Her words again, no longer words of bitterness, but words of blessing. But lest we think that this story is simply about putting food on the table for Ruth and Naomi, the end of verse 20, Naomi also said to her, the man, Boaz, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. We've already been told that Boaz is a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, chapter two, verse one, one of Elimelech's relatives, here identified as a close relative, close enough to act as a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, being a a family member who was able to fulfill the stipulations of the Leveret Law, meaning that they were able to buy back land having been sold by an impoverished relative so that the land didn't leave the family, perhaps even buying back an impoverished person who had sold himself or herself into slavery. At times too, stepping into a husbanding role and extending the family line in the case of a widowed woman whose husband had left her childless. Notice here that Naomi refers to Boaz as a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. 
Here, Naomi identifying fully with Ruth as family. Having once thought there to be no prospect of a husband for Ruth in Bethlehem, going so far as to encourage Ruth along with her sister to return to Moab, now acknowledging that perhaps she was wrong. In God's providence, Ruth having stepped into the path of a kinsman redeemer. And yet, chapter two ends with a reminder that the story's not over yet. We're only halfway there. Verse 21, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he, Boaz, has said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, Ruth did, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Here we learn that there are actually two harvests. The first being the barley harvest around mid to late April with the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread, followed by the wheat harvest roughly a month later with the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, so that the the gleaning from these two harvests would have taken roughly about seven to eight weeks from sometime in April to, to sometime in June. So that on the one hand, we see long-term provision for Ruth and Naomi and enough gleaning to fill the storehouse for months and months. While on the other hand, we're left to wonder what will happen in regards to the, the kinsman redeemer aspect of the story. I mean, after all, this chapter ends with Ruth having been in the fields of Boaz for nearly two months. And yet we're told of nothing of any sort of development of a relationship between the two. It's a long time. Get a girl's number, do something, man. (laughs) The chapter ending with the words, and she lived with her mother-in-law. That's not good. And yet, we can walk away from chapter two with happy hearts because the great reversal has already begun. Most importantly, in the heart of Naomi. The Puritan Thomas Watson once wrote, grace dissolves and liquefies the soul, causing a spiritual thaw. Isn't that a beautiful way to describe God's grace? It appears as though Naomi has experienced such a thaw at this point in the story. The kindness, the mercy, the grace of God having softened her heart. Perhaps that's what some of us need this morning. Having allowed bitterness to creep in, having allowed hopelessness and despair to creep in, having allowed our circumstances to be the lens through which we view God's character, nature, and being as opposed to the other way around. We need our hearts melted by the mercy of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, whether we can see it anywhere else looking to the cross and empty tomb. As we'll soon see, Boaz is able to do for Ruth and Naomi what they're unable to do for themselves as a kinsman redeemer, pointing us to the greater Boaz, Jesus Christ, who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves as the greatest of kinsmen redeemers. This, This sermon is entitled The Meal, not simply because it includes a break time meal with Ruth, Boaz, and his workers amidst the field of the fields of Bethlehem, though it surely does, 
but two, because it would set the stage for many meals to come and would ultimately lead to the provision of Christ for us all. Jesus, who would be born in that very same little town of Bethlehem, the bread of life, born in the house of bread, that we too, hungry beggars that we are, might taste redemption. David Strain, in his commentary on this passage, he says, no one who ever came to, in faith to Christ empty went away empty still. In fact, the lesson of Ruth's ephah of grain, like the lesson of Jesus's 12 baskets of leftovers, is more wonderful than that. It is not just that there is grace to fill your deepest spiritual need under the wings of the Almighty. It is not just that Jesus is an adequate savior for every sinner who seeks him. No, it is that there is more grace than you can manage, more grace than you can exhaust, more grace in Christ, and extravagance of grace in him for you. There is super abounding provision for you in the God of mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. He goes on to write, some of us live in fear as we face tomorrow because deep down we are not sure if Jesus is up to the task of supplying our deep heart needs. We are not entirely sure if we can trust Christ to provide. I love this part. He says, but as Ruth staggered home under the enormous weight of barley, I'm sure she would tell you, albeit between grunts of exertion, that he can provide and he will provide. There is more grace in him than need in you, and you will never exhaust the provision of God. So the question this morning is simple. What is there to say regarding the Lord's gracious provision in your life? Have you reason to sing of his grace, his mercy, his loving kindness this morning? And the answer, if you've tasted the redemption that's yours in Jesus Christ is a hearty yes and amen. In a moment, we're gonna do just that. We're gonna sing I wanna give some space before we jump into the first lyrics of the next song for us to sit with the so what of our time in the scriptures this morning. To ask, Lord, what do you have for me? Is there a spiritual thaw? A work that you're doing in my life, liquefying my soul even now? Am I in need of a, a reorientation so that I... I See my circumstances through the lens of who you are as opposed to the other way around? Am I so caught up in the circumstances of my life in a place of devastation in this moment that I can't even see the grace of God in the cross and empty tomb? Where are we? We wanna give some space to say, so what, God? What do you have for me? And then we'll join in the collective song of the church, hopefully with hearts that are spiritually thawed, with lips that are happy to sing of God's goodness, glory, and grace this morning in a together way. There'll also be an opportunity to receive the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to partake of that meal rather that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I think we'd be going beyond the bounds 
of, of what it is to foreshadow the work of Christ, to look at the ephah of barley on Ruth's shoulders and to say that it surely traces to the weight of our sin on the shoulders of Christ. And yet there's beauty in the imagery all the same. If you're not a Christian, I pray that you would turn to Jesus. See the weight of your sin upon his shoulders. Receive the forgiveness that's found in him. Fall at his feet as a worthy, gracious, and good king. If you are a Christian, many of you know this, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus. We dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There are communion stations on either side of the stage. There's a gluten-free station in the back corner there. Whenever you're ready, over the course of these last few songs that we're gonna sing, you're welcome to come and receive of those elements for all of us, we who are in Christ as well. I just encourage you to see those two pictures, to see Ruth staggering her way home through grunts of exertion with the ephah of barley on her shoulders and see Jesus climbing the hill of Golgotha for you. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.